for today's episode, we have uh, Terry Tucker with us. Hi, Terry. How are you? I'm good, Raul. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, I'm uh, very excited to talk to you. Uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, you can't tell this sitting down, but I'm six foot eight inches tall and I played college basketball. I have a brother who is six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. And then my middle brother is six foot six, and he was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six foot five. So if you sat behind our family in church growing up, <laughs> there wasn't a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, in, in front. So, and then my mom was five seven, and she was pretty much the boss. You know, whatever mom said, didn't matter how big we were, it, it went with mom. So Athletics, specifically basketball, uh, was an important part of my life growing up. And I attended college at the Citadel, which is a military college in South Carolina on a basketball scholarship, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. After college, I moved home to find a job. This was a, a time long before the internet was available. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. And, you know, I look back now and realize what a knucklehead I was. I didn't know anything about business just because I had a degree. Fortunately, I was able to find that first job. Uh, I worked in the corporate offices in the marketing department of Wendy's International, the, the hamburger chain, the fast food chain. Um, but unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my grandmother and my father who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, my wife and I have been married for 27 years, and our only child, a daughter, is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is a lieutenant in the United States Space Force. So kind of in a nutshell, that's, my, that's me. I've had a bunch of other jobs. Uh, I was a police officer. I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was on the SWAT team as a hostage negotiator. I've been a basketball coach. Um, been an author, had my own business. So I've done quite a few things in, in, in the time I've been on this earth. Let's start from the beginning. How, how, like, when you were going through your college degree and choosing your major, like, what was going through your mind? Like, uh, if you look at in the hindsight, what was it that you were thinking during that period? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's a great question because um, I had always been, or I'd always felt I'd had a propensity to want to be a policeman, to want to be in law enforcement. And my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during the height of prohibition when alcohol was not allowed in the United States. He was also there during the gangster days of Al Capone and all that stuff. Um, and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun taking a, a murder suspect back to, to, the, to the lockup. It, it wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. It wasn't life-threatening. But my dad always remembered the stories that my grandmother told about the knock on the door and the, the command staff saying, you know, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son. Your husband's been shot. So my dad was totally opposed to me going into law enforcement. You know, he was like, you're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to, you know, get out of college, you're going to go to work, you know, and you're going to work an eight to five Monday through Friday 
suit and tie kind of job. And, and I did, I did do that uh, mostly because he was very ill when I got out of college and I, and I didn't want to upset him, but that, that wasn't my passion. I, I, I didn't like, I majored in business, but I really didn't like it. I liked law um, much better um, political science. Uh, I was very good at, at reading and writing and things like that. So, um, you know, that probably if I would have done what I wanted to do, I would have gone in that direction. But in all honesty, you know, 17, 18 year old kid, I, I had no idea what I wanted to major in, you know, I, and my dad's like, Hey, major in business. So I'm like, okay, I'll major in business. So, but looking back on it now, I probably wouldn't have done that just because I, I didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't, I wasn't passionate about, you know, getting up and going to class and stuff like that. So that was kind of my, my thought process. I mean, I, I went to, I went to college on a basketball scholarship. So unfortunately I look back now, my focus was on basketball and it should have been more on academics. Um, but I got a great education and, you know, still have a lot of close friends and played some great basketball. I, played against Michael Jordan when I was in college and that. So, you know, I, I've, I've had a great opportunity, but like I said, if I had to do it over again, knowing what I know now, I changed some things. Mm -hmm. So playing with Michael Jordan, that's, that's an amazing memoir for you, for your lifetime. You know, it really is. And, and, and uh, I'll give you kind of a funny story uh, uh, as an aside, my, um, so I played with him my senior year or against him my senior year in college. And he was a freshman. So fast forward, say, 20 years after that, my brother, my youngest brother, was a basketball coach um, at Loyola Academy in Chicago, and he coached both of Michael Jordan's two sons. And he said, one day I was at practice, and he said, it's toward the end of practice, and I'm, I'm teaching the, the players a play, and I look up, and nobody's paying attention to me at all. So I look over to where they're looking, and Michael Jordan had come into the gym just as a parent, he was there to pick up his kids, you know, after practice and take them home. And so my brother said to him, Hey, Michael, you know, would you mind waiting out in the hall? You're a little bit of a distraction here. And, you know, Jordan was a super guy. He was like, sure, coach, no problem. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for the, the interruption. I'll wait in the hall until practice was over. My brother was thinking about that later. And he said, you know, I'm probably the only coach in the history of basketball that ever kicked Michael Jordan out of practice, you know? So it, it was, uh, it was a great experience for him and, and Jordan and his wife were, were super and, and didn't interfere or try to tell him how to do his job or anything. And um, you know, he has very, very fond memories of, of, of the whole Jordan family. It's a surreal experience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really was. Cause it, you know, the, all the parents took turns having the, like the pregame meal, at their homes during the season. So when it was the Jordan's turn to do that, you know, everybody came over to the compound, you know, and, and they, he had it catered in the indoor gym that he had in his house and stuff like that. So it, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's not a way you or I live and, you know, mm -hmm. but it was a great experience for my brother to be part of that. Uh, that's great. So how, how did your uh, journey begin towards, uh, a motivational speaker that you are now how how did it first start so um i guess probably the the really the, the way i got into this started in 2012 when i faced the greatest challenge of my life when i was diagnosed with this very rare form of cancer very rare form of melanoma 
that appeared on the bottom of my foot. And by the time the cancer was detected, it had spread to a lymph node in my groin. And because this form of cancer is very rare, there's only about 6,500 people in the, in the United States. I don't know the world numbers, but there's only about 6,500 people in the United States that get this form of cancer every year. It was recommended that I be treated at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, MD Anderson's kind of a, a world-renowned cancer hospital. So I went there and I, I had two surgeries to eliminate the tumor on all the lymph nodes in my groin. And then I had a skin graft to close the wound on the bottom of my foot. And after I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. Now, interferon for me was a horrible, nasty, debilitating drug. And I took those weekly injections for four years and seven months before the medicine really became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which usually isn't compatible with being alive. Fortunately, I was in a, a level one trauma center emergency room that was able to stabilize me and, and get me to the, to the intensive care unit. But the interferon, when I was on it, gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. I lost 50 pounds during my therapy. I used to kid with my wife that I thought I was so skinny that I could go hang gliding on a Dorito, you know, one of those chips and that is a bad joke. But, you know, I, I was constantly nauseous and fatigued and chilled. I, I mean, and this misery went on for over 1,660 days. I, I, I guess to put it in perspective, imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that's kind of what I went through to help keep the cancer from coming back. And the one thing I learned during all my pain and suffering is that you have two choices. You can succumb to the debilitating discomfort and misery, or you can learn to embrace it and use it to make you a stronger and better human being. Now, I chose the latter, but I want your listeners to understand that there were days that I felt so lousy or, or so poorly and was in so much agony that I literally prayed to die. I, I just wanted out of this life. Each day was a struggle for me to use my mind to override the apathy and the distress that my body was feeling. I realized that pain and discomfort can beat you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. But I also came to appreciate that I could use my pain and suffering to make me a stronger and more determined individual. I wish I could sit here and tell you that this was a feel-good story, you know, that, hey, I've beaten my disease and all that, but I haven't. Uh, right after the interferon was stopped, uh, the disease came back in 2017, and eventually my only treatment option was the amputation of my left foot in January of 2018. Cancer came back again in 2019, requiring two additional surgeries, and then last year, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone, and that resulted in the amputation of my leg above the knee right in the middle of a global pandemic. And then further testing found that I have tumors, multiple tumors in each of my lungs, and I'm currently undergoing treatment for those tumors right now. However, my doctor's not exactly optimistic about my long-term longevity, but I refuse to be a victim to the malignancy. You know, I vowed to continue my fight I knew the only way that cancer could win is if I gave up or I gave into the disease or it killed me. How, how do you keep your mental state uh, positive in, in, in a difficult period like this? I, I guess the easiest way to, 
to tell you how I do that is I, I have this and kind of looking at it right now. I have this post-it note that sits on my desk and it has it has three sentences on it. And, and I'll tell you what those sentences are. The first one is you need to control your mind or it will control you. The second one is you need to embrace the pain and the suffering that you're feeling in your life and use it to make you a stronger and more determined individual. And the third one is as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. Now, because I've had so much pain and so much agony or whatever you want to say, I've learned to, to kind of turn that inside, you know, where most people run away from pain. I don't, I don't, I don't want that. I got to get away from it. I've learned to, to take it and, and to, to, to basically internalize it and use it as fuel or energy to make me stronger. So because I do that, you know, we, we talked a little bit in, in sort of the, the questions that before the podcast about, you know, you, you look at every day as it's day one, week one, you know, so every, you know, you asked me what my favorite day was, it's Monday, because that's, that's day one, you know, and we're, and we're getting started. And, and I had a nurse recently, I'm undergoing a clinical trial. And I had a nurse recently come to me and say, you know, Terry, nobody would think anything less of you if you got off this trial, because the trial is very hard on my body. I, I, I throw up for a long time. I shake. I, I violently shake. I, I have a fever. It's very hard on my body. And I do this for like an entire week. And she was like, you know, nobody would think anything less of you if you quit. You know, and I, I tried to explain to her that, you know, my doctor may pull me off this study or I may die on this study, but I will never quit this study because it's, it's just not, it's not who I am. If, if you understand the three sentences I just gave you, I, I'm not a quitter. And so I will keep going as long as I can possibly go on this. And she couldn't understand that. She, she was having a hard time. And, and, and that's what, you know, people ask me, how do you do this? And, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've just learned how to take pain and turn it into energy or fuel just to make me stronger. But uh, there must be days when you feel completely defeated, completely on your knees and just praying to get something positive out of what you've been through. So it's still very difficult to deal with just on the basis of determination and will of not quitting. So how, how do you deal with it? Because it's a mental battle still. Totally. So that, yeah. That is still... It's totally a mental battle. And, and I don't want you or your listeners to think that, you know, I've got a big S on my chest with a cape or anything like that. I am not, I am not Superman. I, I mean, I, I am not somebody that doesn't have bad days that gets down. And, you know, there are days that I cry. There are days that, you know, let me rephrase that. There aren't days when I do that. There are times when I do that. I, I, I don't stay there. I, I don't let myself stay in that down and defeated and, you know, just black or, or really heavy area. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. All right. You had your little pity party. Now put on your big boy pants and let's get after it. You know, let's, let's go. I, I mean, I feel this way. A lot of times I get two weeks off between my week long therapy and, and that Sunday, you know, before I start on Monday, I, I can't, my wife will probably tell you, you know, there's so many days like, man, I, I don't want to do this. I, I don't want to go tomorrow. And, you know, yeah, I don't. But you know what? I will. 
I will get up tomorrow morning. I will go there. I will take whatever pain, you know, I have to take, but I don't want to do it. I mean, it's not like I'm like a masochist where it's like, yeah, give me pain. I, I, I don't, I don't, I'll have as little pain as you can possibly give me, but whatever you give me, I'm going to take, and I'm going to use that to make me tougher. You know, like uh, people get down on so little things like, oh, that person called me something or uh, that person said something. It's not as significant in their life either. And yet they they get down. So how how would you recommend people dealing with problems in their life, dealing with down moments, dealing with problems that you've faced in your life? And and, and we all have those. And, and there's nothing wrong with those. What's wrong is... If you stay there, you know, if you stay in that, in that feeling, in that moment, and, and it just keeps building where it's, you know, oh, I, I feel bad and oh, I feel sad and oh, I'm down and oh, I'm down and oh, I'm down. And it, and it just snowballs. And then you've got this huge snowball facing you that's like, you know, I can't, I can't get out of this. So understand that everybody has that. Everybody is going to get down. Everybody's going to be afraid. Everybody's going to be depressed, have anxiety. That happens to everybody. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care how you know strong you think you are. It happens. Your choice, and, and it's your choice, is to stay there or to say, you know what? No, it's day one, week one. I'm, I'm going to get after it. Yes, I'm scared. You know, and, and what do they say about you know bravery that, you know, uh, a hero is somebody that's braver for five more minutes than everybody else. You know, so don't think that, you know, people that are, oh, that guy's got it all together or that woman's, you know, I want to be like her and stuff like that. Don't think that those people don't have bad days because they do. The choice is what you do with that. The choice is, am I going to stay in this down and ugly mode or am I going to say, okay, I'm tired. I'm scared. I'm, I'm, anxious, whatever, but I still have to move forward. And as long as you're moving forward, you're growing. If you're not moving forward, then you're dying. So that's what I always tell people, keep moving forward. If something scares you, especially, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm, I'm sick or, you know, or anything like that. It could be, you know, I, 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 I want to do that. I want to move my life in that direction, but it scares me. I would tell you, if that's what your brain is saying, if that's what your body's telling you, you want to go in this direction, but your brain is holding you back. Nope, don't do that. That That's scary. Do that. Do the things that scare you because at the end of your life, it's not going to be the things that you did that you're going to regret. It's going to be the things that you didn't do that you will regret. And I know that's a cliche and, and, and that saying's been around for a long time, but I also, I'll, I'll add one to that that says, the wealthiest places on earth are our cemeteries because they're areas rich in businesses never started, books never written, relationships never pursued, goals never realized. So understand that when you're six feet under, it's too late to do it then. Do it now while you're, while you're alive, especially if you're afraid. If you're afraid, do it because you'll be stronger for it. And that's a, that's a really great way to live your life. Anyways, if you if you do what you want to and uh, just seek that perfection, seek that uh, motivation to pursue ahead, it's the best way to live. So, like, what do you do? Like, when you feel kind of lost, don't know like what to do ahead in life, what to do next, what's next for me. So, how do you answer questions like that with uh, with the weight that you're carrying around with you? 
you know, that's a good question. I, I, I don't, I don't know what's next for me in a lot of ways. You know, I am, I am probably coming to the end of my life and I'm okay with that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not looking to die or I'm not trying to hasten that process and I'll do everything I can to fight to, to maintain this life. But at the same time, I think if you find your purpose in life, the reason that, that you were put on this earth and then live that purpose, when it comes time for you to go, you're going to be a whole lot more calm uh, because you, you did what you were supposed to do. You were put on this earth to do something. You figured that out. You did it. And now it's time to move on. And, and I have a, a very deep faith in God. I believe there's something beyond this for us. And so in a way, and, and I don't want every psychiatrist in Colorado at my door when I say this, in a way, I'm almost excited about what's next. You know, I, I'm not afraid, like I said, don't get me wrong, I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid that if and when it comes, that it, it's, you know, it's going to scare me. I, I'm more of like, hey, okay, what's next? You know, hopefully I've done what I'm supposed to do. And now it's time to move on to whatever's next. And, and I don't know what that is, but I'm kind of excited to find out. So like uh, you said, like finding your passion and doing, doing what you were born to do, uh, what your purpose was to do in, in life. When people uh, often aren't able to figure out what they are supposed to do, uh, I met and interviewed so many people who, who, who just cannot figure out what their passion is. What is it that they love? So how do we find something? How do you find something you love? So really kind of helping people find and live their purpose or their why, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of become my passion with whatever time that I have left on this on this planet. And I recall a, a quote from Mark Twain, uh, a, a very famous author here in the U.S., who said that the two most important days of our lives are the day we're born and the day we figure out why. And a lot of times when I speak to groups, I'll ask them this question. Do you have any idea why you were put on this earth? And sometimes I'll even expand on that and be like, do you know why you were born now at this time? Why weren't you born 5,000 years ago or you know 50,000 years in the future? There's a reason that you were born. And that reason involves finding and living your purpose. I believe that we're all destined to live uncommon and extraordinary lives. And that has nothing to do with what kind of job we have, how much money we make, what kind of car we drive or anything like that. We are not all born with the same gifts and talents but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. The problem is, as I see it, is that most people take an unintentional approach to living, and by living a casual life, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions, they become a casualty of that unplanned living. I've had plenty of time to think about my own death during all the years that I've been battling cancer. And after I die, I can't imagine standing in the presence of our creator, whoever or whatever you believe that entity to be, and being unable to account for the gifts and the talents that I was born with and that I didn't use to make the world a better place. As a police officer, and certainly with the number of years that I've been fighting cancer, I've met a, a lot of folks who, who've had cancer, I've seen a lot of people die. And it's been my experience that the people who die, what probably you and I would call happy deaths or peaceful deaths, are those people who utilize their time on this earth 
to find and live their purpose. On the other hand, many of the people who I've observed go kicking and screaming from this world, you know, they want another day or another month or another year. Those were people who never did anything with their lives. They never saw the urgency of living their uncommon and extraordinary purpose. They never took a chance on their dreams. They never took the time to figure out who they were, why they were here, and what they were supposed to do with their life. There's a Native American Blackfoot proverb that I heard years ago that I that I just love. And it I I I'm I'm I it's fun for me to do this on podcasts and, and say this because it, it just resonates so much with me, kind of in my heart or my soul. And and this proverb goes like this: it's like when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. The only way to find your purpose is to search it out, to try things that make you uncomfortable, to fight against the status quo, to experience things that scare you. Finding your purpose or your why is essential because it's the reason that you were born. And the only way to discover that reason is to be open to it and search for it with your heart. That's a great answer. Um, that's very similar to what my father says as well. Like uh, finding passion is just trying to find your favorite food. To find your favorite food, you have to try different cuisines, different uh, style of foods. And you, you'll know at the end of the day that oh, what works for you and what doesn't. Exactly. I, I, you know, I, I mean, and that's true with anything. You know, if, you're, if you want to, you know, am, do I like basketball? Well, you got to play basketball to see if you like it. You know, do I like riding bikes? Well, you got to ride a bike to see if you like it, you know, so you can't just say, oh, I don't like that. And, and, and that's something that, you know, and, and maybe you've experienced this. And the, one of the things that really bothers me when I talk with people are people that'll say, you know, I, I could never do what you're doing. You know, I could never handle, you know, cancer for nine years like you're doing it. You know, I look at him and I'm saying, yeah, you're right. You couldn't because you've already in your mind decided you couldn't do this. And, you know, I always ask them, why would you put up that, that roadblock? Why would you put up that, that impediment to doing it before you even try it? And it doesn't have to be, you know, I could never do cancer. But, you know, I could never be a policeman. Well, yeah, you're right. You couldn't. If, you, you know, if you're going to say, start out in the negative, you're, you're never going to do that. So why not give yourself a chance to at least try it and then say, you know what, this isn't for me? Or you know what? I love this and I'm going to continue to do it, whatever it is. But if you never try it, if you never, you know, put your really jump in, you know, not just stick your toe in the pool, but jump in with both feet and give it a chance. I, I mean, those people bother me. You know, if you ask me what kind of people I don't want around me, it's those people. I, I don't want negative people who's like, I can't do that. What when I was coaching high school basketball, I, I told my players, I said, I will never punish, excuse me, punish you by making you run. You know, if you do something wrong, I, it, you know, I'm not going to make the team run except for one thing. If I hear anybody say, I can't do this, or we can't do this, you may not be able to do it now, but if you don't keep trying, if we don't keep working on it in practice, there'll be a point where you can do it. But if I hear you say, we can't, then we're going to run. And, and I never heard anybody say we can't or I can't because you know, nobody wanted to run. It was never a fun thing. But I never wanted to punish kids for, you know, trying to do things. But, you know, my my attitude was by you telling me you can't, 
you're not trying. You've pretty much given up and saying we're not going to do this. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a little attitude adjustment by doing a little sprinting here. So yeah, and uh, I I guess that's that's a great way to ignite some creativity as well because creativity requires that space to make mistakes and belief in yourself. So uh, that that's a great way to ignite that creativity, which which I think is lacking in our education system right now. Yeah, everything is rot memorization and then just spit it back. And my my both of my brothers are in education and my brother's been a school principal for 20 years in Chicago. And, you know, we always talk about that kind of thing of, you know, are, are you teaching kids to understand or are you teaching kids to regurgitate it on a test? And if you're just doing it to, you know, to get them to pass a test, my, my brother always says it would be interesting to go back and look at those kids two years from now. You know, you took algebra two and, and you passed it. But two years from now, could you do could you do any of the problems in algebra two? And, and in many cases, the answer is no, because you just learned for the test. And then I just forgot about it. So, yeah, I, I mean, you you got to engage kids, especially children, you know, young people. Their minds are like sponges. It's like engage them. Let them, you know. Yes, you got to teach a lesson, but teach that lesson in the parameter of letting the kid go go research something that interests you. You know, you're talking about the Civil War in the United States. Go research a person or an event or something that interests you. You go find out about it. You know, if you do that instead of saying you will go do this, well, that does. It was kind of like me in college. I I wasn't real interested in business, so as a result, I didn't I didn't put a lot of effort into it. It was you know I I did enough to get by, and that's that's not who I am. And, and that, that, that was kind of hard for me to kind of say, eh, I don't care. You know, I, I just got to pass this course. So. Yeah. Uh, we, we put minimal effort in, in things that we, doesn't interest us. That that's, that's how it is. So it is. like what, what has been like difference in your mindset? Like when you compare yourself like a decade ago in 2011, 12, during that period when, when you found out about your cancer and what's the time you are, uh, going through now. So when you compare your mindset, like what is the major difference in your mindset? I think for me, it's it's how I approach things. Um, you know, as I said, I you know, I, I sound like, you know, I'm just somebody that can just handle all kinds of pain. And I can probably handle more pain than the average person. But you got to understand where I came from. When I was a child, and I knew I was going with my mother to the pediatrician to get a vaccine, I would wait until my mother got out of the car and then I'd lock all the doors from the inside, you know, and this was a time before there were key fobs, you know, where you could unlock all the doors. So my mom would have to go inside and get the pediatrician and his nurse and play a cat and mouse game with me to extricate me from the car. And and the pediatrician usually would carry me in like over his shoulder, you know, just to get a simple shot, you know, a simple vaccination. That's how petrified I was of doctors and, you know, the healthcare system and, and that. And, you know, now I look at, I mean, I, I practically live at the hospital. I think I, I always tease my doctor that, you know, there should be a wing of the hospital that has my name on it because I've, I've been here so much and that. So, so it's really kind of my, my mindset. You know, it, it's gone from I can't do this and this scares me to, okay, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to take whatever you got for me today, however bad it is, however much I'm going to hurt, you know, however tired I am, whatever you want to say, and I'm going to use that and I'm going to burn it just like a furnace does for fuel. 
I'm going to burn that and I'm going to be better. And, I, and I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. I don't care what it is. And, and literally there are days when I arrive at the hospital at six o'clock in the morning and I do not leave until 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, then I have to be back at six o'clock the next morning. So, you, you know, you, you just know that going in. Yes, this is going to suck, but you have to embrace the suck. Uh, Winston Churchill had a great quote during World War II. He said, if you're going through hell, keep going. And, and I remember that all the time. It's like, you know what? Monday, I'm going to go through hell. But boy, I'm going to keep going. And by Friday, I'm going to come out the other side of that hell. How, how important is like the support of your family? Like uh, dealing with something like this requires a lot of mental and emotional support other than your own energy, of course. Oh, absolutely. I, my family, I, you know, the, the one word answer to your question is huge. It, 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 you know, it doesn't get any better. I am totally convinced that without my wife, I would be dead by now. There, there have been certain instances where she has been there or recognized things and, and gotten me the, the proper medical care that without it, I would, have, I would have died. When I was diagnosed with cancer, our daughter was in high school. And my wife and I made a conscious decision that we would never lie to her, that we would always tell her the truth. Obviously, age appropriate for where she was. She She's an adult now, so you know we don't we don't hide anything, or we don't you know there's there's nothing that we need to to sugarcoat or anything like that with her. Um, but yeah, I mean I deal with the physical pain of all of this, and yes, I have the mental side of it too. But I really think the mental part of what my wife goes through of not you know of dropping me off at the hospital because I you know with COVID I don't want her to come in with me. It's like. I can do this by myself. I, I, I know you want to be here, but I don't want you exposed to potentially what you could be exposed to here. So, you know, you drop me off at six o'clock in the morning, you come back and pick me up at 10 o'clock at night and you see just how beat up I am. And that, you know, for somebody that you love, that that's that's hard. It, it's hard to to look at somebody you care about, somebody you've been with for, you know, 27 years, 27 plus years. And say, you know, hey, it's no big deal. But, you know, there certainly have been times I, I always kind of I make the joke when when I found out I had tumors in my lungs, my doctor wanted to put me on chemotherapy. And I was like, you know, I've had a good run, not really afraid to die, don't want to do chemotherapy. And so I came home and I, I told my family about it. And we had a family meeting and I was outvoted two to one. And now I took chemotherapy. You know, I, I mean, I it's kind of a joke, but it really happened. You know, my wife was like, you're going to take chemo. My daughter was like, you're going to take chemo. And I'm like, well, I don't want to take chemo. We don't care. You're going to do it anyway. You know? So I remember when I was in the police academy and I was, I was learning to be a police officer, the defensive tactics instructor used to make us bring a photograph of the people that we loved the most. And he, and we would look at that photograph as we learned how to defend ourselves. And his reasoning was, you will fight harder for people you love than you will fight for yourself. So he always wanted us to remember that, you know, out on the streets at three o'clock in the morning when you're fighting for your life, that you're not just fighting for your life. You're fighting for the, the life of your wife or your husband or and your children and that kind of stuff. And I've always remembered that. And, and, and that's kind of what I, you know, what I think about, you know, that this, this isn't, just about me. There are other people, you know, I have my mother's still alive. I have brothers and, and, you know, nieces and nephews and that, that, 
you know, they're all in this with me as well. I have friends and, and, and things. And, you know, it's not just about me. I have a whole circle of people that support me in different ways. And without them, there's really no way that I, I would get to this point, I, that I would be at this point. Uh, it's it's uh, very important to have that support. And it, it motivates you in some ways. And it um, keeps you going. Yeah, love is a great motivator. It, you know, it, it really is. I mean, people that love you and that you love, you know, you can do a lot of things when you're when you're doing it because you love somebody else. It is true. Um, I'd rather do anything for my brother than for myself. So because I love him that much. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and I, you know, and we kind of laugh about it, but it's true. And and you know, and I'm sure your brother appreciates that. And he'd probably do the same thing for you. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> uh, like, what are some like fond memories that you have, uh, like when you were like a police officer or a tactics negotiator? Um, you know, I, when when people ask me about my time in law enforcement, I I kind of try to put it in perspective for them. And and this is what I say: Can you imagine whatever your job is that when you would go to your job, you're going to make less money than a plumber does? That everybody that you come in contact with isn't going to want you there and that you are going to be lied to by everybody you come in contact with. And, and when, when people think about that, that's really what a policeman deals with every day. You know, so you're making less money than a plumber does. When you, you know, you stop somebody to give them a ticket because they were speeding or you arrest somebody because they were, you know, beating up their wife or, you know, you're knocking on somebody's door to tell them that their grandmother's passed away and, you know, they need to go or call a number or whatever it is. Nobody wants you there. Those are, those are never good things, even though, we, you know, we're, we're not there to try to, you know, we're trying to change your behavior, you know, like slow down because you might kill somebody. And then when we get there, everybody lies to us because everybody wants to put their best foot forward and say, hey, believe me, take that guy to jail or, you know, no, believe me, take him to jail. So when you look at that, you, you have to believe that, that people get into that profession because they want to make a difference, because they want to help their community. And because you're not going to get rich being a cop and, you know, you're working nights and you're working when it's cold and it's rainy and it's, you know, all the, the lousy days of the week, you're missing, you know, anniversaries and birthdays and stuff like that. So, but I love being a policeman. I couldn't wait to get up and, and I worked my entire career at night. So I, I said, get up in the morning, you know, I'd get up at night, you know, I'd get up to have dinner with my family and, and put our daughter to bed. And then I, I worked from 11 o'clock at night till seven in the morning. And then I worked uh, in the drug unit from uh, seven at night till three in the morning. So I, I worked at night and I loved, I loved being out at night. I loved the hunt. I loved the prowl to see, you know, what you could uncover. And that was one part of it. But just the experiences of the people you got to meet, the people that were happy that you were there to help them um, was was amazing. You know, I, I mean, the 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 elderly or, you know, the the children who, you know, I, I, I this is kind of a funny story. You know, three o'clock in the morning, here's this probably three year old running around out in the street in a diaper. And we're like, oh, my God, you know, how horrible is this? And we, we finally ended up tracking down that, you know, it was, you know, you think, oh, what a horrible parent this was for letting this kid run around. The, the, it, was a, it was a single mom and her baby and the three-year-old, the three-year-old had gotten up in the middle of the night, had slid a chair over to the front door, 
had unlocked the door and had gotten out. Mom had no idea that happened. Mom was still asleep. You know, it wasn't bad parenting. It was just one of those things that happened. And fortunately, my partner and I were able to scoop this baby up, you know, before it got hit by a car or, you know, before somebody else did something to it that, you know, wasn't in a positive way and reunite that child with the parents. So uh, that was, you know, those kind of things made you feel kind of all warm and fuzzy. The hostage negotiation part was a little bit more intense um, because obviously if you were talking to me as a hostage negotiator, you were definitely having the worst day of your life. I I mean, there is no doubt that your life had gone off the rails at some point and you were either holding a hostage or you had a gun and you barricaded yourself or whatever it was. And it was up to us to take time to, um, you know, one of the things as a policeman is, you know, visual cues. I can look at you and see that, you know, you're, 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 you're making fists. Well, you might, that means you might want to fight me or something like that. As a hostage negotiator, you never saw the people, you know, you were probably a block away talking to them on the phone So you had to try to figure things out based on what they were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it, and and try to put this puzzle together and eventually get them to come out. And and I I like to explain it kind of like a teeter-totter or a seesaw at the park. When we started talking to them, their emotional part of their life was way up here. And, And when you're emotional, you can't think rationally. So over time, by just asking them open-ended questions and getting them to talk and burn off some of that emotional energy, you kind of get that teeter-totter to equilibrium. And then you can start talking rationally about coming out or putting the gun down or letting the person go. And hopefully over time, we can get so that the emotional side is way down on the ground and the rational side is way up in the air. And now we're talking rational. Now come on out and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's kind of how, how it worked. In theory, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes people didn't want to come out and they didn't. And they ended up, you know, shooting themselves or something like that. And and that was, I never lost any sleep over that. I don't want your audience to think that I'm callous or cruel because of that. I just realized that I did the very best I could to help them and that the problem they were dealing with very well could have been 10, 20, 30 years in the making. And it had just come to a head at this point. And for me to try to solve that, you know, in a couple hours or, or even three or four hours, it, it just wasn't realistic for them. And, and you know, it, but again, it was their choice to end their life as opposed to put the gun down and come out. That, uh, that must have been like very intense pressure uh, on your head. Like not only uh, it is your job, but also other people are dependent on it. You know, it was, but we we trained a lot. I mean, we... We trained once a month and and we we spent the whole time just going through different scenarios. And we had a psychologist that worked with us in training. And, you know, well, did you think about this or what about that? And, and you know, you, you start to develop additional skills that, you know, will help you out when you get in that situation. And 90 percent of the time, these things, you know, happen you know, at midnight or three o'clock in the morning or, you know, when the bars closed or whatever, you know, and people had liquid courage and stuff like that. A Kind of a funny story. We had a guy who barricaded himself in his house with a gun and his wife and, and I was working that night. And so I, I got to the scene pretty fast 
and I was talking to the, the officers and they're like, he's drunk. He's got his wife in there and they had him on the phone. So I started talking to him and, and it wasn't a situation where he was real emotional. He, he really wasn't. So I said to him, I said, what would it take for you to come out to let your wife go and for you to come out? He said, get me a beer. I said, do I have your, weir- your word if I got you a beer that you would, co- you would let your wife go and you would come out? He said, you have my word. So I gave one of the policemen five bucks. I said, get down to the store and buy a beer. And we put the beer on the front porch and we told them, you know, you come out, we'll, we'll let you drink the beer. And, and that was one thing. We never lied to them. You know, we never, you know, I don't want to go to jail. Well, sorry, when this is over, you, you're going to go to jail. But same thing, you know, if I told you you could drink that beer, if you let your wife go and came out, then I was going to let you drink that beer. And sure enough, he let his wife come out. He put the gun down. He came out. We handcuffed him. We let him drink the beer. And then we took him to jail. So, you know, it, it's kind of a funny story. They're, they didn't all end that way. But that was just one of the ways that we got to resolve something by just being honest with an, with another person. Uh, these are like very surreal uh, moments. and. Uh like you you must have like a lot of memories like that throughout different careers that you have had so like what's the best memory of, of like being a motivational speaker and in in a way that you're helping people like you have always helped people being a police officer so how how is it different now i i think the so i guess the best way to answer that you know especially with covid really haven't done a lot of motivational speaking. You know, I, I've, I've been more able to get my word out through, you know, people like yourself who have podcasts and things like that. Because let's face it, people aren't having big gatherings where they're looking to bring somebody in to speak. So um, so last year I wrote a book and the, the book is called Sustainable Excellence, the, the 10 Principles to Living Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And one of the, the proudest moments, I guess, out of that was an 87-year-old man who had bought the book, read the book, unbeknownst to me, uh, and then contacted me and said, I wish I would have had these principles when I was young. I would have had a much better life. And I thought, you know, that kind of a thing. I, I remember when, I, when the book was first released, I was all you know, excited about, you know, I, I got to sell books. I got to sell books. I got to sell books. And I had a, a best-selling author in the United Kingdom who contacted me and he said, said, no, you're looking at this the wrong way. He said, your job is not to sell books. Your job is to help people. If you help people, the books will sell themselves. And, and he really kind of put that in, in a, a really good perspective for me because I, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, I got to sell books. And he said, it's not about selling the books. It's about helping people help people, the books will sell themselves. So I'm to the point now where, you know, if, if somebody buys a book, that's fine, you know, but it's really, how am I helping people? How am I, how am I getting the word out of my, of, of telling you my story in such a way that maybe you can use something, you know, maybe one thing that I say, or one quote that I give you that you can use to make your life a little bit better. And if I do that, that that's, that's good enough for me. That, uh, that's a very good way to look at it as well, because perspective is something that people are, we lack in general sometimes. And uh, we, we forget to see that we are so uh, well endowed that, that uh, we, we have everything and still ungrateful. And it is that perspective that we lack. And, and I think getting a perspective 
really changes your mindset completely. Oh, it does. And, and, and I'll be the first to tell you that people in the United States, I mean, we have so much excess compared to mm-hmm. so many other countries and people in so many other countries that you don't realize. I mean, even if you're poor, you're so much better off than, you know, say somebody in, in India or Pakistan or, or you know, and, and, there, and there's, there's poor everywhere. I don't, you know, Africa, wherever you want to say it, but you don't realize just how good you have it compared to people who they don't know, they don't have clean water. You know, they don't have heat. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have, you know, all these kind of things that are creature comforts for you and you take for granted. They don't have those things. So yeah, don't, don't complain too much because, you know, you don't have to look too far to find somebody else who's a whole lot worse off than you are. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like uh, during COVID, I, I realized that uh, a lot because I was in India for like six months and uh, I, I saw people, there were, there were people who, who were dying of starvation because they didn't have food because they, they weren't able to earn money. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't able to buy food for the next day. And so we started this initiative to like buy groceries for them and, and deliver it to them. But we saw how how bad it could be. And yeah. we, we, we sometimes don't realize that um, we are very lucky in, in, in so many ways. We are. And, and, we, and we don't appreciate that. You know, we just look at what we don't have instead of how lucky we are with what we do have. Absolutely correct. Uh, what, what is like the best advice that you've ever got? Best advice that I ever got, probably to shut up and listen. Um, I, I devoted an entire chapter in my book to listening and, and listening to understand instead of listening to reply. And I know I'm guilty of this from time to time. You know, somebody's talking and I'm just like, you know, hurry up and finish talking because I want to get my two cents in here. And I don't really understand either what they're saying or where they're coming from, you know, with what they're saying, because I, I'm just all excited about getting my two cents in here. And, and I thought it's so important to understand. And, and that was one thing being a hostage negotiator, you know, to being able to understand based on what people are saying to you, where they're coming from, you know, where, where is this coming from? Why is this person feel that way or feel this way? And, and that's incredibly important, but we think we're so, I mean, human beings are so narcissistic. We love talking about ourselves and stuff like that. And, and I always, I always do this. I don't go to a lot of parties these days and that, but when, you know, my wife and I were younger and we'd go to parties, I used to, I used to kind of tease my wife. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, we're going to go to this party and I'm going to go around and I'm going to, at the end of the party, I'm going to tell you all about these people, you know, where they were born, how they how they met their spouse, you know, how many kids they have, where their kid goes. I, I'm going to tell you all this stuff and they're not going to know one thing about me. And all I did was what I did as a hostage negotiator. I'd ask them an open-ended question. How did you and your husband meet? Oh, you know, where did you go to college? What did you think about that experience? And all I did was ask a question and shut up and let them talk and let them talk and let them talk. And, and nobody or rarely did anybody ever say, oh, well, where did you go to school? Or how did you and your wife meet or something like that? And it used to drive my wife nuts. She would be like, you know, you'd go to these parties, you'd learn everything about everybody else and nobody had a clue about you. I mean, our daughter went to the Air Force Academy, you know, for college. And I remember being at a party and talking to all these people about their kids, where their kids go to college, blah, 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 blah. And, And then at the end of the night, 
somebody came up, literally, we were getting our coats on and somebody came up and say, so do you have kids? Yeah, I do. I have one daughter. Is she in college? Yeah, she's in college. Where'd she go to school? The United States Air Force Academy. And like, uh, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. It was like, oh my God, I wish we would have known that because we, we'd like to ask you some questions. Oh, sorry, night's over. We're leaving. Bye-bye. You know, and that, but it's just, you never asked. And so if you didn't ask, I'm not going to volunteer anything. And, and like I said, I, I don't, I don't do that to be cruel. I just do it to kind of reinforce what I already know. We love talking about ourselves, but if you can just be quiet and ask people about them, they'll, they'll spend the night telling you everything, you know, they'll spill their beans. It's, you know, they'll give you the, the nuclear codes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, I joke about that, but you just ask them, people love talking about themselves and, and it just drives my wife nuts when we go to parties and I do that. So. Yep. Uh, and uh, I agree. Maybe I'm talking about myself now that <laughs> I'm, I've learned a lot about shut up and listen while doing this podcast. And, uh, and I see people talking about themselves and I learn a lot about them through this. So like success has a different metric for everyone around us and everyone defines success in different way. So how, what is success to you? Like, how do you define success for yourself? So I'll give you a definition of success that I heard when I was a child. And literally when I was probably in seventh or eighth grade, I, I was a big admirer of a basketball coach by the name of John Wooden, who was out at UCLA. And, and Coach Wooden had a definition of success that, that I use today and that I've never heard a better one since. And this is what he said. He said, success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing that you did the best to become the best that you're capable of becoming. That's how he defines success. He never talked about winning or losing or anything like that. It's just your peace of mind knowing that you did the very best at whatever you're doing. You know, I'm taking this algebra test right now. Am I successful? Well, did I get an A? Well, that doesn't matter. Did you do your best on that test? Did you prepare your best for that test? If you did, it doesn't matter what the grade is. So that's kind of how I define success. But kind of recently, I've thought about success and I, and success is what we do. You know, you are a successful podcaster. You know, I am a successful author or a basketball player, whatever you want to say. And I think, I think we're kind of missing the point. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago about being narcissistic, about being about us. Success is what we do. We are successful. I think a better word to substitute for success is significance. Because significance is what we do for others. Success is what we do for ourselves. Significance is what we do for others. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you can be successful and significant, but I think it's more important as I get older that I think significance is much more important than success is. And if you can be successful and then be significant in other people's lives, so much the better. But, you know, everybody wants to talk about success. I think maybe we should switch that conversation to let's talk about significance. What are we doing? Like you said, you know, you went home to India, you saw people that were starving, you started buying people groceries. That's significance. You know, you may be successful, but I think in the long term, you would probably feel better about yourself being significant based on the people that you helped in India who were who couldn't feed themselves. <clears throat> definitely, definitely like be uh, that's that's what 
makes us different from animals because uh, because even animals live for themselves it's uh, as human beings we are more our brain is more developed so we should think about others as well because we have that capability and make use of it at least absolutely <clears throat> so like if you, if you had to pick like one profession like you've been through uh, multiple professions throughout your uh, life so what would be your like favorite period of like in in terms of career what was your favorite profession i'd say my prep, my favorite profession was being a dad uh, I, and i really mean that because there was a there was a time in my life when i didn't think i wanted children and to to watch our daughter be born and to realize that somebody now was totally dependent on you for their very existence was just such a an overwhelming and 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 tremendous feeling that you know you i i didn't i didn't want to make a mistake i didn't i didn't you know she idolized me you know she worshiped me and it was like that was an amazing thing for me to to go through and you know i, I always yeah you know, i've had a couple young parents like you know do you have any advice and my advice is always yeah remember this you're the parent you're not their friend you're going to have to make tough decisions that they're not going to like and you know they're going to be i hate you and you know screaming off and stomping their feet and slamming the door in the bedroom and my response to that when they tell you they hate you just look at them and say well i love you and that's why i'm making this decision so if you if you make your decisions out of love not of not out of spite or anything like that you know you, you you'll be fine so i'd say that was definitely my my favorite but in terms of a career or a job had to be law enforcement had to be being being a cop i i mean i i wish i was still doing it i I loved it. it. I I felt like I made a difference every day that I went to work and I worked with some really great people that felt the same way. You know, I mean, you hear a lot about law enforcement, you know, uh, they're out there shooting people and killing minorities and all that kind of stuff. It's like the people I worked with, that wasn't the case. They were out there to make a difference and and to, you know, to try to make a positive impact on the people, you know, the single mom with three kids who's working every day, you know, and just wants to live in a safe place. Well, you know what? The people like me that are willing to say, "You go to work. I'll make sure you're okay and your your house is okay while you're gone." Uh, it takes a different personality to do that as well. Uh, to give, 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 give more than you take from the world. Yeah, I I mean you do, and and you know, and I used to I would talk to some of the academy, you know, classes that were in, you know, at the police academy when we were down there for training, and and I used to tell them, I'm like, you know, you'll be here for six months, and they'll teach you how to use all these tools on your belt, you know, your gun, your handcuffs, your radio, your stick, your mace, all that kind of stuff. But the two greatest weapons, the two greatest tools that you bring to this job are your brain and your mouth. Because you can, by what you say and how you say it, you can turn a yes person into a no person or a no person into a yes person. And if you realize that, if you use your brain and you use your mouth effectively, there's a whole lot less chance you'll have to use any of these tools that are on your belt. So I used to try to get them to remember that, that you brought the two best tools that you'll ever have with you to learn how to be a policeman. Amazing. Well, like I've, I've learned a lot from you today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> how has, how has like being a motivational speaker like changed you? What has it given you? I, I think it's given me the same thing that I felt in law enforcement that I don't have anymore, that, you know, there's somebody out there that hopefully I'm having an impact on. I, I had a, 
just a week before last, when I was in treatment, the, the very first time I had my therapy, uh, I had two nurses that, that took care of me. And one was kind of in training. She'd been a nurse for a while, but she was new to the unit. So she was learning. And last week I, I had her, she was totally uh, responsible for my care. And she told me this story. She said, you know, when I first met you, I was ready to get out of nursing. I was ready. I'd talked to my parents. I was going to quit nursing. I was going to go to work for Amazon. I, I had lost a, a, a good friend to a, an illness who had died. I was depressed. I was down. And then I met you and I heard your story. And after a while, I realized that I was in the right place for me, that I was doing what I was supposed to do with my life. Now, if she had not told me that, I would have had no idea that my life or my story had that kind of an impact on her. And I'm so glad she shared it with me. I mean, it really, it made me feel good that, that she did. Cause I remember when she told me I was really hurting. I mean, I, physically I was hurting. I was tired. I was just, you know, and, and, and that just kind of lifted me up, you know, gave me a little more energy and like, Oh, you know, I would have never known that we never know what kind of an impact our lives or our stories or just how we carry ourselves. You know, people may look at you and say, you know, I want to, I want to be like him. And you have no idea who those people are. And, and, and that's, what's, what's so amazing. So I think motivational speaking has given me the opportunity to do what I did in law enforcement, make, make a difference in people that I may never know that I made a difference in their lives by sharing my story, by sharing my life, uh, or by sharing things that, you know, that I learned growing up with them, that that made an impact, you know, that they were kind of at a crossroads in their life, and they were maybe going to go one way, and then they heard me talk, and now, no, I'm going to go this way, and this is a better way for me. So it ge it's given me what I had in law enforcement, and it's given me an opportunity to, to uh, as you can tell, I mean, it's hard to shut me up sometimes. It's given me an opportunity to to share with people what I think is important, and hopefully they can learn from it, and and their lives will be a little bit better. That's that's an amazing uh, way to live as well because you you're helping, so that that just energizes you in return. Yeah, it does. So, it really does. So, like dealing with failure is something like. Uh, we we don't talk about often. We we all always stick to like how to become successful, or how to earn more money, or how to gain that degree or what whatnot. But uh, we do fail in in the process, and it's not that talked about subject. So what do you do when like when you fail at something, when things are not going your way? Yeah. Um... Get up and try again. I, I mean, it, it's real simple. You know, I mean, you, you know, you're only a failure. I mean, everybody gets knocked down. You're only a failure if you stay down. And I, I devoted an entire chapter in my book to failing, to the importance of failing, especially when you're young. Because, you know, we, we talked earlier about people not wanting to do things or they're afraid to do things because of whatever. You know, I may lose my life savings. You know, this person may not like me or I may fail. And you know what? Yeah. So what? You failed. You actually did something. I mean, I kind of look at that and say, yeah, you failed. But you know what? That guy over there that's saying, you know, uh, you failed. That guy didn't ever, that guy never did anything, you know, and, and it's kind of like why. And, and, and that's what I don't understand. Why would you try something in your life and then care what that guy said? Who cares what they said? 
you know, it, what they say only matters or only is negative if you own it. I mean, you have to own it. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, I care what he says. I, I could care less what people think about me. I could care less people think, you know, your book was terrible or your book was great or your speech was great or your, your speech was terrible. Okay, I gave you the best that I had. And I know I gave you the best that I had. If you didn't like it, okay, that doesn't make me a failure. You, you trying to project that onto me only works if I own it. You know, just like kids in school, you bullied me. Oh, you know, you're ugly. That only works if I take that and say, yeah, gosh, I guess I'm ugly. If I don't, if I don't agree with that, it's like, no, I'm not ugly. I, I, am, I am pretty. I was made in God's image and likeness. I, I can't be ugly. God doesn't make any junk, you know? So why, and why would that matter what that person says? So I always tell people, forget what people say. Forget about the whole, because there's always going to be people that are going to be naysayers. They're going to be like, you know, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you could get in trouble or you might lose your money or you, that's whatever it is. It's like, those are the people that are like, get away from me. Those are the same people that are like, I could never do what you do. You're right. You couldn't because you've already negated it in your own mind. You're, you're already negative. So just get out of my way. And, and so for, from that perspective, (coughs) excuse me, I, I just think people, people have to fail. They have to be willing to fail. That's the only way uh, I'm trying to remember the quote by by Einstein or, or it was Edison, it was Thomas Edison, who said, you know, I never failed. I just came up with, you know, 9,000 different ways not to make the light bulb or something like that. You know, yeah. yeah, he failed a bunch, but he didn't like, oh, my God, I'm a horrible person. You know, that didn't work. I'll stop doing what I'm doing. Nope. He just kept plowing ahead. And that's the difference between successful people and, and non-successful people. The the American football player, Jerry Rice, who played for the San Francisco 49ers, he had a great quote, and, and this is what he said. He said, today, I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. You know, he, I'm going to do the things that I want to do or that I need to do. And you may yell at me and scream at me and call me names or do whatever, but you know what? Tomorrow, I'm going to do the things that you can't do because today I did the things you wouldn't do. And I think that's such a powerful quote. So I always, especially young people, I'm like, you know, nobody sets out to fail. Nobody does. But don't think of it as the end of the world. You failed. Okay, so what? Now, now, what did you learn? You know, you either win or you learn. You know, I always talk about that when I when I had my team. I didn't care what the score was. Did we did we win or did we learn? Because we never lost. If we lost and we learned something, then we won. So what did, what did you learn from that failure? Now take that failure, take what you learned, and maybe try it again in a different way or try something different. But don't be discouraged just because you fail. Everybody fails. Um, again, uh, a, very, a very positive way to look, look at failing. It's, failing is just the chapter before success. That, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's a quote from, some, from somewhere. <laughs> Exactly. And that's a great quote. And that's, you know, if you just keep hitting the wall, eventually you're going to break through. But if you stop hitting the wall, you'll get to the end of your life and say, gee, I wish I would have tried that one more time, or I wish I would have done that one more time. And that's the worst thing in the world to know that you, you don't have the opportunity to do it again. And you Uh, you have that regret. I I just, I, I don't have any regret. I mean, the regrets I have coming to the end of my life are the times that I hurt people, you know, that I, that I did something that 
physically or mentally or psychologically or emotionally hurt somebody else. Those are the only things that I really have any regrets about. I, I, I have very few regrets otherwise. As a motivational speaker, like people must have must come up to you and ask like all sort of all sorts of questions. So like, what is the most common question that you get out of people? Kind of what you just asked me. What what is success? Or how do you define success? And and one of the things that and I I don't know if I've made this clear, but I want to. I, and I tell people this: I I don't have all the answers. You know, sometimes people ask me a question, and the answer is I I don't know. And 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 that's okay. You know, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, or I don't know how I did that, or I don't, I, I don't know. But I mean, if I do know, I'll certainly I'll be happy to tell you. But a lot of people want to know how I define success. And, and I kind of look at them and it's like, it doesn't matter how I define it. It matters how you define. It. I mean, it matters how you look at your life and say, I was successful. And like I said, recently, I've kind of moved away from success and talked about significance, you know. Is it really important that you're successful or is it more important that your life is significant? And, you know, they kind of go away scratching their head because, you know, they they, they were all set on. I want to know that, you know, like you're some sage you know, sitting on top of a mountain. Like, you know, what is the definition of success? And I just kind of, you know, 360 you and said, forget about success. Let's talk about significance. And they're like, oh, geez, I, I was really kind of focusing on success. No, focus on significance. Success will come. That put things in perspective for them as well uh, to look look at how significant your life could be and how do you make it significant just by helping other humans. Exactly, right. So uh, you also talked about like three Fs that, that that are very significant in your life uh, earlier when we were talking faith, family, and friends. So uh, would you like uh, elaborate on that? Sure. I you know I I would I talk about the three Fs as as the most. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the most important things in my life. You know, my, my faith, I have, I have a deep faith in God and, and I am, I'm not afraid to move on to whatever is after we leave this, this planet or this earth or this existence. So faith is very important to me. I probably spend an hour every day in prayer. And most of that prayer is for other people who I've met who are in much more dire straits with disease or you know, job loss or, or whatever it is that, than I am. I, I mean, yeah, if you look at me overall, things are bad, but there's a whole lot of people that are a whole lot, lot worse off than I am. So I, I ask God to, to help those people. So faith, very important. Family, we've talked about my wife and daughter, extremely important. And then friends. And, you, you know, I, I, I talk about friends and I think friends are important because one of the things, and I've done this and you, you've probably done it. Um, you know, when somebody's going into the hospital or, you know, for an operation or to have a baby or, or whatever the reason, you know, you always hear people say, and I've said this myself, hey, if you need anything, let me know. And when I got sick, I realized just how big of a cop out that really was, because that's like saying, OK, I'm going to sit here on the sidelines and I'm going to watch the game and I'm going to convince myself that I'm playing in the game. You're not playing in the game. When I had my first surgery. Um, I did not have to stay in the hospital after I woke up and was, uh, you know, not groggy anymore. I was able to go home and I've been home for about 30 minutes and my cell phone rang and it was my 95 year old friend. He'd been in world war two. And he said, Hey, I know you just got home, but can I come over for just 10 minutes and give you some? And I said, sure. Come on over. His name was bud. I said, come on over, bud. And about 15 minutes later, he shows up at the door with a fully cooked chicken 
and a pan of cream cheese Danish. And he's like, here, you have dinner for tonight and you have breakfast for the morning. Now, I always look at that story and I say, Bud didn't ask me what I needed. He didn't, you know, say, hey, Tara, if you need anything, give me a call. He went out and bought food. The same things that, you know, you need, you do at your house, cut the grass, take the garbage out, walk the dog, go to the grocery store. Those are the same things that I am going to have to do at my house, but I'm going to be in the hospital having a baby or having surgery or having treatment. So just get involved. Just say, hey, Terry, I'm going to come over and cut your grass, you know, on Saturday. Or, hey, Terry, I'm going to take your garbage out tonight or whatever it is. Don't sit there and, and, and think that I have time to tell you how you can help me. I'm in the middle of a crisis, really, in my life. I mean, even having a baby is, you know, I mean, that's that's a big deal. A lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts there. So don't sit on the sidelines and convince yourself you're playing in the game. Actually get in the game and do something. Just whatever it is. I'm going to go to the store. You know, I, 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 I'll get you some stuff. You know, you may not like it, but you know what? It's food. And, and, and there you go. I mean, it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be very simple. And if people will do that, those are the people. I'll tell you, when you have a serious illness, when you get cancer, you find out right away who your friends are. And you find out who the people are just acquaintances and who are scared to death because they don't want to be around you because they're afraid that that might happen to them. And, and I got news for you. It's going to happen to you someday. You know, I mean, we're all going to die. Everybody's going to die, but not everybody's going to really live. And so the people that, you know, you find when something bad happens to you, those are the people you want to hang on to. Those are the people, you know, you want to wrap your arms around and just say, thanks for being there for me. I, I have a friend of mine, actually a, a guy who works with my wife. He's, he's in his early 30s and we probably talk every week. And I can't tell you how much that means to me that he's willing to just talk with me. You know, we'll, we'll do a Zoom call. You know, what's going on? How's the family? You know, what's your treatment like? You know, what's going on at your house? It just just to talk with another human being is, you know, when you're cooped up all day, it is a really important thing. And for him to do that for me, it really makes makes a lot of difference. And I'm very appreciative that he does that. And uh, yeah, sometimes we just underestimate the role of uh, another human being in our life. Sometimes a small conversation can set your mood on fire. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking before. You have no idea how what of an what kind of an impact you have on another human being. I mean, you you have no idea. May just be a simple conversation. May just be a simple, hey, how you doing today? He talked to me, you know, and that made their day. You never know. Amazing. Uh, so Terry, like these are like all the questions that I have. Do you want to share something? Something I, that you want to share? I'll end. I'll end with a story. Um, I, I like telling stories and. So when I was when I was young, my mom and dad used to let me stay up and watch westerns. I love you know cowboys and Indians and all that kind of stuff. That was, I, I love those kind of movies and shows. In 1993, and you may have seen this movie, the movie Tombstone came out, and it starred uh, Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp and Val Kilmer as John Doc Holliday. Now Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings that actually walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters for the movie. And at the very end of the movie, um, Doc and, and Wyatt are, are their best friends. And Wyatt had pretty much been a, a lawman his entire life. And Doc, they called him Doc because he was the dentist by trade, but he was pretty much a, a card shark and a gunslinger. But somehow these two men from entirely different backgrounds formed this tremendous friendship. 
And at the end of the movie, Doc is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. And, and the real Doc Holliday died at that sanitarium. He's buried in the Glenwood Springs uh, City Cemetery. And the two men are, at this point in his life, Wyatt is destitute. He has no money, has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So he comes every day and the two men play cards just to pass the time. And at this scene, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, when I was younger, I was in love with my cousin, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life and get on with living yours. Would I like to not have cancer? You have no idea what I would give to not have cancer, but I do have cancer. And I've been dealt a, a hand of cards and I have to play it. Whatever your situation in life, I, I, I don't care how much money you have, what, what great job you have. I don't care how perfect your life is. You're going to have challenges and you're going to have problems. Life is going to deal you some bad cards. You don't have a choice but to play those cards. I always tell people this, at the end of your life, what are people going to say about you? When you're, at, you know, when you're laying in your casket at your funeral, what is the one thing people are going to say about your life? I always tell people this, make sure that your life was predicated on the decisions that you made, not by the ones that you didn't or the ones that other people made for you. If you do that, I can promise you, you will have an outstanding life. It may not be perfect but you will have an outstanding life. And I'll leave it at that. Amazing, Terry. Um, I cannot, I don't have words to uh, define how much I learned today uh, from your journey, from your story, from your positivity. And, uh, and I've learned a lot. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you so much for being uh, with me on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I think between the two of us, we probably helped some people out there today. And uh, that's that's the whole purpose of this podcast. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.